Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. You know, spent the last five years of his life couch surfing and fishing with friends and getting sicker and sicker and finally went out to uh, stay with his with his um, son in Hawaii and go into hospice and die. And it was like, okay. It was just like, okay, this is, this is what comes next, you know. Great object lesson, because we're all going to be faced with that probably, you know. That was John Garrick on a story behind the final fishing days of a good friend. Tom McGuane, Ernest Hemingway, and John Garrick today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Stonefly Nets is back, giving out one of their bonus build-out giveaway events. We got it going right now, a custom-built, custom Stonefly Net right now. You can get it. All you have to do is go to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway, and we're going to be drawing a winner from that uh, from that group. And then we're going to be doing the build-out, and a custom net is going to be coming your way step-by-step step with Ethan. The great John Garrick is back on the podcast to dig back into some of his amazing books, including Dumb Luck and The Kindness to Strangers. We find out from John what makes a good guide. Uh, we also learn about how much a fly rod loves a dry fly, what rejection feels like, and how he deals with writer's block. This is another amazing one. It's been too long since we had John on, so excited to get this one back out there. We all know him and love him. Very happy to share this one with you today. Here we go. John Garrock. How you doing, John? Doing well. Thanks for uh, thanks for making a little time to come on today and uh, get caught up. We had you on. We'll put a link in the in the show notes to the episode. It was quite a while ago. I think I want to say it's been over three years uh, since we had you on. And I want to get caught up on what you've been up to because you've obviously, it seems like you've always got a, a book going. I think last time we talked, you said you might have had two books going. So we're going to get caught up on that. But but just take us there. How's everything been for you? Give us the COVID rundown. Have you been getting out and traveling over the last few years? I guess it probably slowed you down a little bit. Uh, well, it slowed the whole world down there <laughs> for a, a couple of years. And I was no exception. I got out, um, you know, any place I could drive to and be my, by myself and, you know, stop and get gas outside with a credit card. And, you know, there were there were ways to function. But... Um, I, I didn't get on an airplane for a couple of years. Yep, yep. And are you back at it now? Have you got some trips you've been going? You got some stuff planned? Yeah, yeah. I I traveled some last year, and I'm I've got a few trips planned for for this year, and there'll be probably more to come. Nice. Well, I was thinking one way. You know, last time we had John, it was a, a great episode. We dug into a lot of your background, and I'll put a link to the show notes, that, like I said, to that episode. But I was thinking today we could just get caught up on where you're at. You've You've published uh, a lot of books, and we've talked about that last time. But just giving us a quick update, have you uh, forgotten how many books you published, or what's that look like? Yeah, I, I have to remind myself every <laughs> once in a while. Um, I've published 21 fishing books, and there was a way back in the 70s, there was a book of poetry, which most people long out of print. I don't know if you could, if, you know, impossible to find which may be for the best, I don't know. It was the best work I could do at the time, just put it that way. Yep, yep, and that's part of the, I'm sure you probably look at this as as I do, you know, it's about the body of your work, right? It's not about any single book, but you look back over your the body. Is that kind of how you look at, it, like, your work as you look over the years of what you've done? Well, yeah, I mean, if you add the phrase over the years, yeah, of course. Uh, each book is like, you know, it's a crucial thing. It's going to be your next book. And I always, people ask, what's your favorite book? And I always say, well, it's it's either the one I just published or the one I'm working on. Because um, partly I just think that should be true. But, I mean, I like to think I'm getting better. So, I mean, yeah. So it's like the this book that just came out um, all the time in the world. Actually, it isn't even officially really out yet. I think it's early uh, early next month is the pub date. But um, uh, that's currently my favorite book, but I'm a little bit into the next one already. You know, I finished these. I, it, I sweat, blood, and tears. Worked on it for three years. 
submit it to the publisher, and then there's all the copy editing and proofreading and proofs of galleys and back and forth, and and finally it's done. And then I move on, right? And the, yeah. book, the book isn't going to come out for a year, and by the time the book's out, I've moved on, and I'm thinking about the next one. Right, right. So sometimes it's a real gear change when I start doing the the first few interviews on a new book. I have to really kind of change gears and go, okay, wait a minute, that was a year ago. Yeah, right. How do you keep, you know, maybe you could describe it on this process all the time in the world, this new book, which will probably be out by the time this podcast goes live, but how is that one? Was the process different at all? Take us there a little bit, how this came to be. No, I don't think the process was any different. Um, there was a period of time I was doing a book every two years. And, I, you know, I usually have had a column going somewhere in some magazine. And so I, that is at least the genesis of material. Usually the column doesn't go in as a chapter. but And, I, you know, I always know if I have trouble keeping a column to my word count... I just know, okay, I, I have more to say about this, so I sort of flagged that one. And uh, sometimes there'll be a there'll be a chapter that's written expressly for the book. I like to try to get a new new piece in there from time, you know here and there. And I just there's that year, that winter usually when I just sit down and that's kind of all I do is is go over the thing and figure out an order, what order do these go in? There's usually, I'm always, always in the back of my mind as I'm, as I'm freelancing, well, this is going to, you know, this has got the potential for being part of a book. So I'll, uh, I'll get an order, settle on an order, and, you know, go through it and go, no, it's not right, and change it. And then... Then I'll start at the beginning and rewrite it as a book instead of, you know, just collected odds and ends. And sometimes that's easy and sometimes it involves uh, vast rewriting of things. And so that's kind of the process. And the theme is, you know, the themes are always kind of the same. There's a, there's a lot of writers who just, you know, they, they work on one theme for their entire careers, and I'm one of those guys. I don't know what the theme is. I mean, plainly stated, it's what the hell is going on, right? <laughs> yeah, that is interesting, because it's on your theme, right? It's hard to tell in any given book what the theme is. It's just, I mean, the stories are great. They're always great, but yeah, it's hard to say, like, this book, like, for example, All the Time in the World, you wouldn't say there's like a theme to that book. Like you could just give us a headline. I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, an English professor might be able to dig one out for you. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, there's novelists who've written 15 or 20 novels, the theme of which is, I don't understand women, or I can't make a living, or, you know, I mean, it's usually the theme part usually isn't that deep. Somebody once famously synopsized Moby Dick as uh, man fights whale, whale wins. Yeah, right. Right, so I mean, the the theme part really is there's generally not that much to it. Right, right, and obviously fly fishing is always a focus, but yeah, there's stories within, we'll probably get into a little bit today just on a, um, one of the books that I read, uh, Dumb Luck and the Kindness of Strangers, which... You know, it's probably very similar to All the Time in the World. Talk about that one. What was the timing on that? That's been a few years, right? Or do you do you remember when that one popped out? That was three years ago. Yeah. It came out three years ago. I'd have to look at the, the copyright date, but yeah, it would have been three years ago. Three years ago. Gotcha. Yeah, and I think, you know, from that one, I took away a lot of, um, I mean, just kind of one-liners, right? Like things that just got me thinking. And I'm not sure, do those, where do they, like, for example, let's just look at one, like, in that one, you talked about um, having a stringer, right? You're talking about, like, one of the stories was talking about, you know, your stringer for catching fish. That was one of the questions I was kind of thinking. Do you still have a stringer for your catch? I do. I mean, I don't, I think the, that story was the last time I used it. Yeah, 
but um, yeah, it's it's out. It's all hanging from a nail behind the side door in the garage. I could go get it right now if it wasn't eight degrees out. <laughs> exactly, but that's the cool. I think on the last one you told that story about how can't remember who the writer was, but one of the famous writers described like pointing a gun and how his finger was so bent that it, you know if he pulled the trigger it'd shoot his foot. Yeah, you know, and you describe that, but that's you know you do the same thing, right? And, and that stringer was the same thing. It really painted that picture. Like, yes, I remember those metal stringers. I had one, or I probably still have one too. And so, when you're writing, are you even thinking about that, or does it just come naturally as far as how you're painting the picture, as opposed to telling us something? Well, I think about it in the sense that it's how I've taught myself to write, which is that you don't tell the reader you show the reader yeah you know that was a good example the guy could have just said that was uh it was roger angel he's an old new yorker writer and he could have said that he had crippling arthritis in his hands but what he said was if he made a gun if he made a pistol with his thumb and forefinger pointed it at your nose and pulled the trigger he'd get you in the right knee <laughs> right God, that's so much better. Now you see it. I mean, that's better. And it actually also adds a layer, which is that that he can see the, the humor in it. So he's not just complaining. I mean, he's telling you something and he's saying, well, you know, I'm in my 90s and, uh, you know, I can live with it. Yeah, exactly. So on the book, like you said, this book is coming out here right soon within a month. You probably It's been a while since you've written the book. Do you remember the stories well in that book, or are you thinking about the stories of this next book, whatever's coming out next right now? I'm actually thinking about the story I'm working on right now, which is about a float uh, I took on the Colorado River uh, last September. Hmm. What was that? Take us there a little bit. Can you give us a little heads up on that trip, what we can expect from from this in your next book? Or, and I'm assuming you've got, do you have one book that's that you're kind of working on right now? Yeah, yeah. That's all I've got in me is one book at a time. Um, there have been a few times way back when, when I was working more furiously, where I'd stop between books and do a machine the high country or you know a, a little monograph on bamboo rods or something. But uh, no, it's just there's just one book. Um, what did you ask me? Uh, so for the uh, the trip, the Colorado, I'm interested in this trip. So it sounds like it was a float trip on the Colorado. Yeah, we just went over in September because um, over by uh, a town called Silt, charmingly named Silt, <laughs> where the, you know, the Colorado comes out of its headwater canyons and it starts to get big and it starts to, it starts to flatten out and it flows out across this sage country and across the Colorado Plateau and it's good hopper fishing in the fall. And, um, but of course now we've had, um, wildfires for the last two years and, um, actually we didn't have that many last year, but previous years we did. So there are burn scars and mudslides in the water's discolored now. It used to be crystal clear in September. So there's that, you know, like the water's a little browner than it used to be and people aren't going over there like they used to so but you can still fish it so i you know if there's a theme to that one it's sort of making the best of you know things change but you can still make the best of them and and then i was with two guides who were guides and um you know i mean it's always interesting to be in a boat with guides because they they have a different I think I said they were like jazz musicians. They always seem like they're in on a joke you'll never get. So there's that. And then there's the fact that the Colorado River is uh, slowly drying up and everybody out west is fighting over the water. And uh, and we're up in the, not that we don't take plenty of water out of it, but we're up here where there's still water in it. Yeah, yeah, you're not at the bottom where it doesn't make it out to the to the ocean anymore, right? Yeah. That's the interesting thing about that basin. Yeah. Right, exactly. So, um, you know, that that's a little poignant 
subplot in there that you're fishing a fishing a river that's quite likely on the way out. Yeah. How do you balance that in your writing? Because I know that's a big focus for you. Conservation issues are really important, obviously, and I know they're important for you. How do you, um, you know, do you feel like you kind of do that subtly when you talk about some of these issues or how does that look when overall, if you look at the kind of the body of your work, when you do that, you could just take it to your most recent book you're working on now. Are you always thinking like, I got to get this conservation issue in and talk about it? No, I don't think I have to get it in. But I want to talk about about it when it's there to talk about. But I don't want to lecture. Yeah. You know, I don't want to preach. The people who don't believe in climate change are not going to change their minds. Although I think there's fewer and fewer of them as, as climate change gets right in our face. It's harder to say it isn't true. But um, I just want to talk about it. I want it to be part of the story because it is part of the story. You know, when I first started reading outdoor stories back in the 50s, early 60s, you know, Field and Stream, Outdoor Life, all those guys, most of those stories took place in this kind of timeless fantasy land where nobody had to worry about a job, nobody had marital problems. Uh, you know what I mean? It was yeah. just, there was always an Indian guide. There was always a bottle of whiskey. Whatever else happened, they always ended up catching fish. They always ended up getting their buck. And it was just kind of unbelievable. And then people like uh, Tom McGuane came along and wrote about it like it really is. And that was a revelation to me. It was like, yeah, you can you can be honest about this. You can put it in the context of real life. And it makes it it makes it fuller. It makes it more real. It makes it closer to something like literature. Cuz now you're not only talking about fishing, you're talking about the human condition. Exactly. And McGuane was one of your that was one of the first people. He's obviously been a big influence, but that was one of the first people that showed you that. Uh, no, no, he wasn't the first. Uh, the first was probably Ernest Hemingway. You know, I remember, I think I read, first time I read Big Two-Hearted River was, I was probably 13, and I thought it was just a story of a fishing trip with what at the time was, it was written in the 20s, with like antique tackle, right? Mm-hmm. And, um... Then I read it again at 16. I thought, oh, yeah, there's more to this. You know, this guy's all by himself, and he's not really talking to anybody. And and then at some point, it all starts to become obvious. Like This guy's he's back from, he's back from the First World War. He's got what we they used to call shell shock, but now we call PTSD. And... He's gone fishing to think things over, but he's not droning on about the stuff he's thinking over. He's just talking about the fishing, but he drops in these little things. Like there's a swamp where the on this river where the fishing's really good, but he doesn't want to go in there because he doesn't like the looks of the swamp. And just there's just these subtle little things and. Pretty soon, you read it again at like 25, and it breaks your heart, but you don't quite know why. I go back and read that story every couple of years, and I still haven't figured out how he did that. Everybody who likes fishing stories should read that. That's. I'm glad you brought that one up, because that is a good... Uh, I was thinking about picking your brain on starting the... Uh, the John Gearock Book Club, right? Get some good books that we should all be reading. So that's definitely one we're going to add to to the list. Yeah, that's a short story, and, and it's in with a... Oh, there's that whole section of Michigan stories that are pretty autobiographical and, um, you know, up in Michigan stuff. And um, all pretty good. But that was uh, by far the best, I thought. Perfect. Perfect. You mentioned uh, guides earlier, and I know you know you definitely go on some guide trips around, and you do a little on your own as well. 
And you kind of talked about the inside joke with the guides. What is your experience? I mean, you must have had some great guides over the years. I know I used to do a little bit of guiding. I know how hard it is. To, you know, and some people are, I think, just made for it. What is that? You know, you talked about the inside joke. Do you find that on all your years of the guides that sometimes you find really great ones and sometimes maybe not as great? And what makes a great guide, do you think? Well, um, the joke is there's nothing, nothing better than a good guide or worse than a bad one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a good guide is not only knows his stuff, knows the river, knows the hatches and all that stuff, but he can read people. A lot of guides, um, I've only been out with one or two or three really bad guides, like really people who shouldn't be guiding, can't roll a boat, don't know how to fish. That's really rare. Those guys get weeded out immediately. But mediocre guides, and there's a lot of those, hmm. they just play the same game on everyone, right? Yeah. They just... They treat every client the same, whether he's a 16-year-old who's never fished before or an old geezer like me who's fished for longer than he's been alive. (laughs) And they typically play to the lowest common denominator, so they're always yelling set when you get a strike, and um, they're constantly talking. And But the good guides... Angus Drummond is the guy uh, my friend Ed and I were fishing with on the on the Colorado in September. And Angus just, I mean, he knows Ed. They've worked together. And uh, Ed's a guide, too, so that's, that's taken care of. But he just sussed me out in 10 minutes. <laughs> and it was like, not that I don't need any help. Right. Everybody needs some help. But it was just like, yeah, okay, he knows where to cast. He knows how to cast. He knows where to cast. He knows what to do. And so it was just, he would say, okay, try this little, you know, he'd point out spots that might not be immediately obvious. Or every once in a while, he'd say, let me change out your dropper or something like that. But because um, he knows the hatches and I don't. But, um, you know, mostly I mean, then you just end up talking about local history and politics and and sometimes you even you get comfortable enough that you just stop talking just like you three guys out in the boat everybody knows what they're doing the weather's beautiful the river's beautiful what is there to say you know yeah that's it i mean you just described it right the guide's good enough to know when to talk and when to not talk, right? So he's not sitting there just <laughs> jibber-jabbering the whole time. He's actually letting you enjoy where you are in these amazing places and giving you tips, like you said. Well, you know, I was I was out with a guy in Wisconsin, and I should remember his name. I'll remember it maybe as I tell the story. But um, his deal, he had a shtick. He told jokes all day long. And uh, they weren't all good jokes, but <laughs> some of them were good. Yeah. And at first you go, okay, I don't know if I'm going to like this or not. And of course, you know, I mean, if there was something to say about the fishing, he'd say it. And I don't mean it was nonstop, but, and at the end, it was like, you know, that was kind of, it was, it was kind of like spending a day in a boat with Buddy Hackett or somebody, but it's not like you long to go out and do it again the next day. So, you know, every once in a while, there's somebody who's just, Oh, I've been out a couple of times with this guy who, you know, guides always say, well, the only thing the guide can really control is uh, what's for lunch. And so this guy would do these just fabulous lunches, just gourmet lunches. And it was like, okay, I mean, that maybe the fishing was good, but maybe, and maybe it wasn't, but you know, lunch is going to be great. And so that was kind of his thing. And so there's there's room for creativity, God knows. I yeah. mean, and some of the old guides I fished with in Labrador when I first started going up there, they wouldn't say five words all day. I mean, they, you know, in the morning they'd say, get in the boat. And they'd motor you somewhere and they'd say, fish here. And if they if they, they'd watch you and if they didn't think you were a good fisherman, they'd go take a nap. <laughs> and if they 
thought you knew what you were doing, they'd stand there with the net. And then at lunchtime, they'd say, let's eat. And I mean, that was it. Yeah. You'd say, what fly should I use? And he'd say, well, you're the fisherman. Hmm. Mm-hmm. This is for the brook trout? Yeah. So, and I, you know, I kind of like that, too. It's like this one guy said, you know, uh, yeah, I'm the guide, but, you know, if somebody comes up here to fish and they don't know how to fish, that's not my problem, eh? <laughs> right. That's pretty good. But if they get a beginner, that would be, I guess people coming up to Labrador probably aren't too many beginners, I'd imagine. Oh, it happens. Yeah. Uh, it does happen. And, and you know, that's changed. I got in on the kind of the last of those laconic old Northwoods guys who were just kind of owly and, you know, reclusive. And uh, the guides now are, it's a new generation. They're younger. And, you know, they still kind of assume you know how to fish. But if you don't, They'll say, okay, look, uh, let me show you. And, you know, they, they don't have the whole educational trip down like some do, but they'll say, well, look, hold it like this. And, yeah. What about that? Do you like the history? Do you like the, you know, you're on the river, you're on the water, and somebody is just like a, you know, PhD in the history of the river and the canyon and the species? Do you love somebody filling in on that when you're out there? I do. I do. Um, my only problem is trying to take notes and fish at the same time. Yeah. But I'm, you know, I'm always kind of aware that I'm a fisherman, but I'm also a writer and it's the writing that pays the bills. So I'll reel in. I mean, if, if it gets, you know, if it gets really interesting and there's stuff I want to get down, I'll reel in and get out the notebook. But what I prefer to do is like back at the lodge in the evening, I'll go find a guy and I'll say, okay, what was the name of that river? What was that volcano? You know, whatever it is. I try to get that stuff on site, if only because some of this stuff, you're only going to get it on site. I mean, you're only going to get the correct spelling of something like Chiganagat Volcano. (laughs) Yeah. If you're standing there looking at it and you go back to the lodge and there's a map and you say, okay, that's how you spell it. There's some things you just can't look up online. Today's episode is sponsored by Trestle, who has earned an exceptional reputation over the past few years in the fly fishing industry due to the popularity of their telescopic fly rod roof racks and statement making artist series apparel lines. Their latest release for 2023 is the Jerian Universal Bike Rack Packing System, a brand new way to transport your fly fishing and outdoor gear. The Jerion will give any modern bike the ability to bring 30 pounds of gear with its front and rear articulated racks. Whether you ride a full suspension mountain bike, an e-bike, or even a carbon fiber road bike, the Jerion will get you and your fishing gear further faster and have much more fun along the way. I can tell you this has been a big struggle for me. I've been riding my bike, uh, both road bikes and mountain bikes, and had lots of issues over the years packing my gear, whether that's uh, crappy uh, storage on the back or a trailer that's just too big and bulky. So I'm excited to share this packing system, which is going to make it way more convenient and accessible to get out to the places you need to go. You can learn more about how Trestle is transforming the way you access your favorite water, backcountry, hunting zones, and camping spots. Head over to wetflyswing.com slash Trestle right now and be the first on the water and the farthest upstream and away from the crowds. That's Trestle, T-R-X-S-T-L-E. Trestle, live your pursuit. I was, um, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, Dumb Luck and the Kindness of Strangers was a book that came out a few years ago and it's one that you know, I've been reading uh, lately, and um, you had a couple of interesting kind of notes I made. And one of them you said, um, and I was going to ask you, is how much does a fly rod love a dry fly? That was a quote you had in there. So describe that a little bit. How much do you think a fly rod loves a dry fly? What did you mean by that? Well, I just think that um, fly fishing was basically invented for dry flies. And I mean, there's there's some... Um, there was a Roman historian. His name was Marcus Aelianus. I write about him in the new book. And um, 
This was in something like the third century. And he wrote about some fishermen. Uh, it's kind of not clear exactly where they were because all the names have changed. But they were fishing for these speckled fishes, which I take to be trout. And the fish were eating bugs floating on the surface. And they couldn't use the bugs themselves as bait. They couldn't thread them on a hook. So they tied wool and feathers on hooks to mimic the bugs, you know, the right color wool. And um, maybe they waxed them, maybe they didn't, but they, they fished that and caught the fish. And that's the first, supposedly, according to John McDonald, that's the first written mention of fly fishing hmm. anywhere, at least in the English language. So I just always thought, well, yeah, it started out as dry flies. And it, even when I started fishing in the 60s and, and early 70s, uh, there were wet flies and there were streamers. But, you know, nymph fishing was, I remember the first story I tried to sell on nymph fishing and the editor of the magazine rejected it, and he said, we, we don't do that. Wow. We don't put weight on our leaders. Right. That's, that isn't done. And, you know, three years later, he's going, he's calling me up and going, well, you know how to nymph fish. Why don't you write me a story about it? <laughs> right. But, I mean, for the longest time, it was just dry flies, essentially, or you're fishing within, within uh, an inch or two of the surface, and nobody waited flies and right the good old days right <laughs> well it, it was the good old days and actually uh Lee Wolf's idea of dry flies was he said well you know fish deserve the sanctuary of deep water he saw it as a conservation thing so if uh if fish do 80% of their feeding under the surface that means you're going to catch 20% of the fish or you're going to catch fish 20% of the time. And that should be good enough. That's a great point. Did you know, um, Lee Wolf? Yeah. Did you talk to him? No, I'm not sure. I, yeah, I can't say I knew him, but I met him a few times. We talked, we had dinner together once and he was, uh, he was an intense guy. Uh, and I, I don't know. I'm a little, uh, I can get a little hinky around intensity. You know what I mean? I'm pretty laid back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hinky being like if somebody's super intense, you're going to kind of let them know? No, I'm not going to let them know. I'm just going to kind of sit back and let them be intense, but I'm not going to join them in it. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. And what do you mean by intense? Well, by kind of having all the answers and assuming you don't have any of them. Uh, I'm not, I don't, I don't mean Lee specifically, but, sure. you know, guys like that tend to think, okay, well, I, I know you don't. So you just tend to, and you know, if you sit back and sip your coffee and let them talk pretty soon, they'll, they'll get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) And you you don't have to point it out, but you just smile to yourself and you go, yeah, well, you don't know it all. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's it. That's kind of how I do it too. I tend to you know, be subtle about it. Like there's no reason those people, you know, some people like that, you don't have to tell them. I mean, it's obvious to anybody around, right? When that situation happens. So you mentioned uh, rejection. I'm guessing you haven't been rejected too many times in your writing, but was that like that one example you gave us? How did that feel? And have you had to deal with that? And how have you dealt with rejection? Well, if you're going to be a freelance writer, uh, you develop a thick skin early. You know, you just do, because you're going to get rejected. And, um, oh, I, I got rejected plenty when I started writing. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I kind of got spoiled because I actually sold the first fishing story I ever submitted. Hmm. But not necessarily the second or third. Right. Do you remember that? That story, who you sold it to, or what was the story? I remember I sold it to Fly Fisherman Magazine. I think that's when they were still in St. Louis. I think it was still the original guys that started it. 
And um, I don't, I remember it was in 1975 or six. I actually have a ledger of all the stuff I've sold. I could go back and oh, find nice. it. But um, uh, I don't, don't actually remember what it was. Maybe we can look it up for you. We'll, we'll dig in. We'll talk to you. Uh, the, we'll see. That'd be great to have that, right? I always wonder about that with the magazines. You got all this body of work, the same thing we talk about, but it, you can't, it's, sometimes it's hard to find these older articles, which I'm sure are great, right? Uh, I don't know how great they are. <laughs> you know, some of this, some, sometimes I've been writing for almost half a century now, and people ask me that. Don't you wish you could go back and, and, see some of that earlier stuff and sometimes i think yeah maybe it's best that's just gone right so you're better so you're a better writer much better writer than you were in 1975 god i hope so <laughs> yeah so you're not born great at this thing i don't think so uh maybe maybe somebody is but even hemingway struggled and everybody's got stories of their early struggles and piles of rejection slips and you just, you know, you send a story to somebody and they send it back. You know, it's not like your English teacher. They're not going to say, okay, this is a C-minus paper and here's what's wrong with it. They're just going to go, yeah, we don't want it. Right, nobody's going to buy it. And they're not going to critique it. And so it's just basically somebody going, this isn't good enough. How do you figure that out over time? So how do you know the stuff that's, um, you know, you really know that isn't that good and the stuff that is? Does it, I guess people are buying it or not, but do you know when you're writing it after you're completed? They're like, ah. Uh. Yeah, yeah, you do eventually. I, I think the thing you do is you read voluminously. You read lots and lots of good books. And you just develop a sense of what good writing looks like. And you don't, sometimes, I've got a few writers, some of Hemingway, almost all of Alan, Alice Monroe, some of Al, Annie Dillard, a lot of Tom McGuane, some of Jim Harrison, that I just go back and read and haven't, still haven't quite put my finger on either Sometimes it's what they're doing. Sometimes it's why they're doing it or how it works or why it works. I tend to be fascinated by that, by writers who can, you know, make you feel certain ways, but you go, well, where, did, where exactly in the story is it that they accomplished that? But then John McPhee, in a book called um, Draft Number 4, pretty much answers that. He just said... It's detail. He said, you have a thousand details combined to make a single impression. And you, the implication is you can't put your finger on detail number 873 and say that was the one that did it. It's just this cumulative effect. Right, right. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, this is great. We're on this. We had a question, or um, Lane Forer, who's a writer, and he was on our podcast a while back, and he noted, um, he used one of your quotes, I don't have it in front of me, but he used one of your quotes, I think he even asked you for if he could do it in his book, and I asked him, do you have a question for John, I told him you're coming on, he, he wanted to ask, um, you know, what do you see as the true success in writing, what do you see as true success in writing when you look back at what you've done? Well, I want to say quality, quality writing, that's what I want to say. But the fact is, I think it's, I think true success for me was making a living at it. And, you know, I know that sounds mercenary, but in a way, I mean, it's not because to be a good writer, I think you have to do it for a living. I mean, I think you have to do it all the time or at least full time. Maybe not all the time. You need breaks. And... The only way you can do that is make a living at it. And so that's why it's not good that, you know, there's this whole Internet thing where information wants to be free. Actually, no, information wants to be paid for because otherwise, if it's free, you get what you pay for, which was nothing. So it's some guy in his mother's basement <laughs> making it up. Yep. Yep. And, uh, so, I, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to be said for writers, novelists, musicians, artists, 
making a living. Yeah, there is. There's a big difference. And Lane's going to love that answer because he is, you know, it is in his full-time job, but that's his goal. I asked him what his goal was, and, and that was it. And he talked about how, you know, he's reading your stuff, right? He's read all your stuff. And so, I mean, you've been influenced by Tom, you know, McGuane and all these people, and now you're influenced. I mean, do you see that, like, out there, your influence on all these new writers that are going to be full-time people eventually? How does that feel, and do you see that out there? I do see it. I mean, I, you know, I hear from people. Um, this afternoon, I'm going to go down and do a signing at the um, oh, nice. fly fishing show in Denver. It's likely that somebody will come up to me and say, well, I'm, you know, I want to be a writer or I'm a beginning writer. What's your advice? And, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm aware of it. I don't know. I mean, there's always this, I, I just read an article in the New Yorker about the imposter syndrome where, you know, you, when you become successful, you almost have this sense that you've right. you fooled somebody. Because it's still, it's still just you. It's just the same guy that used to get rejection letters is now getting checks. And the work has gotten better, and you know that, but when somebody says, you know, somebody in their 20s comes up and says, what should I do? <laughs> I go, geez, I don't, want, I don't want that to be my responsibility, man. You know, I mean, if he looks up to me and I give yeah. him advice, he's going to follow it. And that's a, that's a big responsibility. Plus, when I started out, there was no internet, there was no websites, there were no podcasts. There was none of, you know, yeah. it was all in print. It was all in print. It was all through the mail. So it was all different. I mean, how do you, people ask, how do you got started? I say, well, I can tell you how I got started in 1970. But that's not going to do you any good, because it's a whole new world. And I mean, if nothing else, back then, they understood they had to pay for the work. Nobody wanted you to work for free. Think of the exposure. And so at least, you know, a lot of magazines didn't pay well, but if you could write enough, you could still make a living. Yeah, it's a different world definitely now, and that's why that's a great point is that people... You know, I guess it's the same thing, though, right? You got to keep writing, and once you finish that book, start your next book. I mean, would that be a good advice for somebody out there just to keep writing and don't get too excited on that first successful or published book? Uh, yeah, that would be a good piece of advice. And um, you know, when you get a story rejected, a lot of writers will just turn around and send it to another magazine. But it's probably smarter to sit down and look at it and go, well. Okay, this was rejected for a reason. You know, publications need material, even if it's only to fill the space between advertising in their minds. But, you know, there's a standard. There's a basic standard of, of quality that they have to hold up. And um, so you go, okay, what was wrong with this? And on a computer now, Back in the days of typewriters, it was a pain in the ass. But on computers now, you just call up the file and start editing, and go. Well, I could be more. I could be more descriptive here. I could be less descriptive there. I could be more specific here. I could, you know, actually, when I uh, just as a random example, I talk about trees here. Maybe I should find out what kind of trees they were. Um. I talk about minnows, maybe I should find out what species of minnow there were. Uh, you know, details. But I think, I think editing your own work, reading other people's good work, pretty soon, if you're cut out for it at all, I mean, I think there's, I don't believe in God-given talent or anything. I think you can learn to do most things. But, um, you know, if, you're, if it's something that you're predisposed to do, I think you pick it up, but it's it takes work. I mean, it really does take an awful lot of work. I still agonize over it. Right. You still get writer's block? Absolutely. Absolutely. Although I've, I think I don't believe in writer's block as such. I think it's just you either didn't really have anything to say or... You don't have enough information. You have to go back 
and learn more about your subject or something. I mean, if you get stuck, because every once in a while I get I get stories that just literally write themselves because I've got everything I need. I know how I feel about them. But, you know, I wrote a story about, and it's also, I think that was actually in the last book, about my friend Paul who died. And, uh, he, you know, he got sick, and we went fishing for the last time, and it was just all he could manage to do to catch a, his last couple of trout. And um, I started that story, I don't know how many times, and I just couldn't do it. It just uh, it wasn't right. I would get a couple of paragraphs in, and i go, no, no, this isn't any good. And finally, it was just, I had this revelation. It was like this voice said, dude, this story is not about you. And as soon as I figured that out, I just sat down and wrote it. And I mean, I went back and made some edits and stuff, but I mean, it just basically came out in one draft. It was his story. It wasn't, it wasn't my story. It wasn't how I felt. It was his story. Yeah, yeah. And that was in Dumb Luck and the Kindness of Strange. I remember that one, and it was really, yeah, it was pretty powerful because you talked about Paul and how, yeah, he was dealing, I think it was cancer, and he was on his last last legs, right? And uh, But he made it out on this trip, the final trip, and, mm-hmm. and you talked about it, you described it, and you felt like you could be in Paul's shoes, kind of. I mean, that's kind of what you mean? Like you actually talked about it from his perspective, a little, or at least you could see a little bit of what maybe that feels like. Well... I actually talked about it from my perspective because I have no idea what his perspective was like. I can only only uh, extrapolate. But I was telling his story. And so I could be, instead of a grieving friend, I'm, I'm just a reporter. And it also let me, because he was a hilariously funny guy. He was truly a strange weird little guy from northern Michigan and um, very smart Yeah, with the old pickup right he had this old pickup he was trying to make sure he was taking care of everything yeah I gave him my old pickup when I bought a new one and um, yeah I, I, I don't really know what more to say about that but you know it gave me it gave me since it's his story from my perspective it gave me a chance to tell you how funny he was and how he had these just kind of weird attitudes and, uh, you know, fell on hard times, but never really let it bother him much somehow. And, you know, spent the last five years of his life couch surfing and fishing with friends and getting sicker and sicker and finally went out to uh, stay with his son in Hawaii and going to hospice and die. And it was like, okay. It was just like, okay, this is this is what comes next, you know? Great object lesson. Yeah. Because we're all going to be faced with that probably, you know? No, it is. It's one of the the one things, right? We all have the same amount of time every day and we're all going to die. So it's more about how you um, live your life, I guess. And I think that's something we talked about earlier about your life. You know, I think you part of the reason you got into what you do is you saw your dad, right? Where he loved fishing, but didn't get out as much. And, and now you've made your life, you built your life Mm -hmm. around fly fishing. When you look back at, do you just kind of pinch yourself sometimes and think, or do you look at it more like, Hey, I put my work in to get here. Well, I actually don't look back that much unless someone like you (laughs) uh, turns me around and says, Hey, Hey, old man, look behind you. Um, you know, I don't care what you do. Moments are going to come when you think, geez, maybe I should have done something else. You know, everybody thinks that, I'm convinced. Yeah. Like what? Like you could have been president of the United States or something like that. <laughs> no, but um, I could have gone straight and made money and, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I'd have done. I could have been a college professor. I studied philosophy in college. I could be. I could be a guy, you know, with a a tweed jacket and a striped tie, um, thinking deep thoughts and writing books that, uh, were considered great, but nobody read. And, but geez, I've had so much fun and the, the work's been fun. And even if it wasn't fun at the time, it's fun to 
think about now, people come to me, young writers come to me, and they're kind of desperate, and I go, yeah, I used to be desperate. <laughs> now I'm just tired. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, I, I think I made the right decision. I mean, I spent, you know, I spent most of my life doing what people say they want to do when they retire, which is write their memoirs and go fishing a lot. And I did that stuff when I was young enough that I could still do a lot of stuff that I can't do now. I mean, I do the really crazy-ass strenuous stuff. And I learned how to write, so the memoirs can be pretty good. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And I kind of remember the quote you just reminded me that Lane Forer had. I think the one he used was something about, you know, with fly fishing, you have to be old enough to be good at it, but you have to be like be like a kid to really enjoy it or something like that. Do you remember that quote you had somewhere along the way? I don't. Exactly, but it was somebody said, it was somebody was talking about baseball. They said it takes a, it takes an old man to appreciate it, but it takes a kid to think it's important. Something like that. And it's so true. Yeah, and fly fishing, I think, is is like that. Maybe even, uh, maybe even riding. Yeah. Another, uh, from Dumb Luck and the Kindness of Strangers, another one I pulled out of there that was, I thought was really interesting was, um, you said, how has vanity lost its grip on you over time? You mentioned that you said that in the book. So does that, I'm not even sure what that means exactly. Do you remember that? What does that mean to you? Oh, it's just, that's just a young man, old man thing. I mean, it, at some point you just care less about how you look to the rest of the world. But it doesn't ever completely, I was talking about, we were at a place and I had, we'd done some really good fishing and I tied some flies that were like, really, they were the fly, you know, every once in a while you tie, you show up with flies you've tied and it works better than anything and you catch lots of big fish and we were getting ready to leave the next morning and this father and son showed up and they were asking how the fishing had been. And I gave him some of these flies. And uh, the camp manager came over and said, yeah, those really, those are good flies. Those really killed them this week. And I, you know, and I, I got this, I got this flush of vanity. And that's what prompted that. It's that, you know, you, it loosens its grip as you get older, but it never entirely lets go. Right. It still feels good. It still feels good to know and whatever it is that you got it, you still got it. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, Nick Lyons said a great thing about fish books. He said, the best fishing stories aren't really about fishing. And I think that's, I think that's true. Right. I think they're always about the good ones, always about something to do with the human condition. That's pretty universal. Which is why I, I actually have a few readers who don't fish. Hmm. They just like the books. I don't think there's thousands of them, but I hear from them every once in a while. I used to hear from this old lady in Vermont. I haven't heard from her in years. I think she died. But she wrote to me once and she said, you know, I don't fish, but I like your books because you're such a pisser. Pissa, you'd say. What is that? What is a pissa? A pisser is... Uh, you know, a smart-ass, somebody that doesn't, you know, isn't too diplomatic, willing to say what they what they mean, regardless of how people think of it. And in the Northeast, you would be a, a pissa. Gotcha. Yeah, I was just thinking, you mentioned the, the book, Writing, Not About Fishing, and I, the book that comes to my mind is just, that, you know, a river runs through it, right? Because that was the whole... That was the whole concept of that mm-hmm. movie. And obviously it's like the greatest fly fishing movie of all time, right? And all that. But that was basically the concept is like, yeah, it was not about fly. In fact, the the author, you know, right? I mean, that was his whole thing. Like everybody thought it was a fly fishing movie, but it was really about all this other stuff. Um, family. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you remember? That's always a fun one because it was such an influence. Do you remember that when that movie kind of came out, that whole thing? I do. I do. I have a different opinion about that than, than a lot of people. A lot of people thought that's what made fly fishing popular was that movie. Less so the book, sadly. But um, I think that the movie was one of the rare instances of a movie that was 
as good as, if not a little better than the book. And that doesn't happen very often. Um, the only other movie I can think of is the um, film version of Annie Proust's The Shipping uh, the Shipping News. The movie might have been slightly better. But um, I always thought with The River Runs Through It, that people said that, well, that's what made fly fishing popular. And I always thought, no, fly fishing had gotten popular enough on its own that Robert Redford could make that movie and sell it. But I, yeah, you know, I mean, it doesn't matter. But I, I think it certainly didn't hurt the popularity of fishing. It's, I think it's what maybe made fishing fashionable. Yeah, definitely did something. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, it had an impact, a major impact. So, I mean, looking again, this could be like the body of your work, but really just your fly fishing, you know, as you look out and I was kind of thinking of this, like, you know, where are you going next? How do you choose like the next place? But do you look at it where you have kind of challenges or places, fish, species, all that stuff you want to hit? Are you more like, I've done it all. I'm just kind of good. I'll take whatever the next big trip is that feels good. Yeah, it's more the latter. You know, I think more about the place. I think more about the people I'll be with. Um, in August, I'm going, I've been going to this lodge, Three Rivers Lodge in Labrador. I think I've been there 12 or 13 times. Wow. Over 20 some years, 25 years maybe. And I just like the people. I like the place. I like the people. I'm going with, um, Jim Babb, who's the former editor of Gray's Sporting Journal, he and mm. I are friends, and actually, we're actually shirt tail relatives. We're distant cousins, twice removed. Babb's great company, and that just so happens to be arguably the best brook trout fishing in the world, also. But um, we're going late in the season, and uh, the fishing's harder. Then the fish are spread out more. They're harder to find. They're a little smarter because they've been, it's a vast area, but they have been fished for. But the thing is, they're as big as they're going to get, and they're in spawning colors. And we're talking about four, five, six, seven pound brook trout. And so you don't catch very many. They'll go by when you don't catch one. But when you catch one, it's like, holy crap, look at this thing. <laughs> wow. And it's almost, I mean, not to sound stuck up, but it's almost connoisseur's fishing. I mean, like, if you're into body counts, don't go. No. It's like steelhead fishing. Yeah, exactly. It's like steelhead. If you're not going to be happy with one beautiful fish, then you need to just go catch bluegills or, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know, keep uh, Silver salmon in September in Alaska, where you can catch sixty fish, and you get tired of it. Yeah. So now, how are you guys doing that? What's the technique? Are you on the uh, on dries, or how are you catching these guys? Boy, that, I mean, that's the that's the big thing. Like, what are they eating? The big hatches are over, but there are still hatches. Depends on the weather. But if if the weather isn't screaming ugly, there can be caddis hatches and mayfly hatches. If you see fish, I mean, you know, it's the old thing. If you see them rising, you fish like dries and droppers to them. But um, one of the reasons they get big is they eat a lot of minnows. So there's a lot of streamer fishing, and uh, there's some nymph fishing. And you just, I mean, that's the challenge. You you find some fish. Maybe you can see them. Maybe you just think they're there. And then you try this and that, and... You know, if you get something that connects, you'll catch a fish or two, and they'll be big and beautiful, and you'll be real happy, and you go back and have a nice dinner at camp and try to warm up, you know, because in August up there, it's it's like October here. Oh, right. Yeah. Sounds like a great trip. So I wanted to just take it out. I keep coming back to the spay thing because I know we've got, it's kind of a passion of mine and steelhead and stuff like that. But how has that been for you? Are you still excited about, because some of that is yeah, you're in the cold for steelhead, but are you still looking ahead saying, hey, I'm going to get some steelhead trips in and, and talk about that. And then also, how is your spay game looking these days? Um, well, I got to think it's a little rusty because I haven't done it in quite a while. 
mean, it was before COVID. It was the last time I fished a spay rod. I think, you know, I think I could, 15 minutes on the water, I could get my chops back. But I don't know. The, the steelhead runs hadn't been good. And um, a friend of mine last summer, he said, uh, getting into uh, steelhead fishing now is like falling in love with a dying woman. Mm, damn. And I thought, you know, that's right. Maybe I should think about spay casting for something else. Sea run char. Brook trout. Sea trout. Uh, well, it's, you know, I'd love to, but... The short spay. Yeah, maybe. I, a friend of mine, uh, the artist C.D. Clark, was up there one year with a... with a, uh, It was either a short spay or a switch rod. And, he, uh, you know, it really just wasn't amenable. The water just isn't... Not big enough? Isn't like that. It's Well, it's yeah, it's not big enough, and it's really rough water, most of it, because you're pretty high up the drainage. So I just never thought, I mean, there's a, every once in a while you come to a spot and you go, yeah, this would be a great spay run. But then you just, you just use a, a one-handed spay. Um, you know, the cast is kind of the same. It's just with a, with a nine foot rod, you don't get the distance. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. I think that's the cool thing about spay. It's like, it's not just a two-handed thing anymore. There's all sorts of different ways, just like fly fishing. You don't have to tie a fish a cat skills dry fly right there's a lot of different ways to fish a dry fly right there so john i want to take away one last um kind of note i had here from i think this was from the dumb luck book but it was uh you mentioned um like just fly fishing i think this was in general it's and you said like it's less like a mugging and more like a con game i think you were describing fly fishing maybe like can you talk about that quote do you remember that one i do uh i'm not sure i remember the context but I mean, elk hunting is like a mugging. Fly fishing, you're, the fish are doing something, and you sneak in, and you try to make them think that your fly is like the one they're eating, the ones they're eating. So you're, you're trying to fool them. And, um, yeah, it's like, a, it's like a con game. It's like, hey, you want, you want to make a lot of money real easy? And the fish goes, yeah, okay. And you go, ha, gotcha. Yeah. Would fishing with bait be more like a mugging, or is that still more like a con game? Well, it's probably a little of both. Fishing with, fishing with bait, I mean, my dad my dad was a big lure guy. He always wanted to, f- he, he would fish however he had to to catch fish. But he always said, lures are better because you fooled the fish. He said, you put a worm on, and you haven't fooled the fish. That's really a worm. Right. And I, <laughs> I always remembered that. It's like, yeah, you know, it's better to throw out this this plastic thing that's supposed to look like a minnow, and the fish thinks it's a minnow and eats it. Yeah, you're right. It's way better. Yeah, instead of tasting and smell, even smelling, right? Feeling yeah. like a, a, an actual thing or the actual thing. Nice, John. Well, give us a heads up in the next, um, I mean, yeah, I guess looking out, you got the one book. That's really what you're focused on, right? You, by the time this episode goes out here in the next month, it'll probably be live. So is that basically all you're focusing on? Well, I guess you're focusing on your next book too. Yeah, well, right now I'm going to be doing some book promotion. The book, by the way, I have to say this is called All the Time in the World. And it's uh, by Simon Schuster. You can get it anywhere. But yeah, I'm going to do promotion for that for a while. Probably do some appearances and uh and some Zoom stuff and uh and then I'm planning fishing for next year, this next season, and I'm uh working on a, the next book and you know, more of the same. Perfect. Well, we're excited to uh see more of the same and can't wait to check out the new book. We'll put uh, links to everything in the show notes so people can pick it up uh, directly. And uh, yeah, John, just uh, appreciate your time again today. Give us an update. This has been a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to hopefully getting you on again when maybe uh, maybe get that next book out there. You bet. I'll be here. So there it is. Boom. The sound of John Girock dropping the mic as he walks off the stage. Wetflyswing.com slash 434. 434 
If you want to check out some of John's recent books, get links out to those, uh, whatever you want to check out. We got it all. We're going to have some good links there, including hopefully a video or two. A quick reminder, the Stonefly custom build, uh, the custom build out bonus right now. This is the custom wood fly fishing net. Ethan's going to be selecting one winner from people who enter. That could be you. Go to wetflyswing.com slash giveaway right now and find out how to enter to win this. Real easy. Just enter your email. And if you win, we'll be uh, announcing it here on this podcast. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here today. Joseph Williams. We're giving a shout out to Joseph Williams who uh, actually was on the live event we had when we did the Euro Nymphing giveaway. And we announced on that event, we gave away a few bonus products. And one of those was a Maverick fly rod, Euro Nymphing rod, and Joseph won that fly rod. Shout out to Joseph for uh, for attending the live event. If you want to check that out, you can go anytime right now, wetflyswing.com slash live, L-I-V-E, and you can find out which event we have going. And, uh, and you can join. Even if you don't uh, enter to win the big trip, there still is an opportunity to, uh, to win some bonus items that we always offer. So shout out to Joseph Williams. Congrats, Joseph. Hope you are enjoying that fly rod. So that's all we have for you today. I'm going to get out of here and, uh, and hope uh, you are going to get out there on the water. And if you do, uh, definitely reach out to me anytime, Dave at Wetfly Swing. Uh, thanks for stopping by today, and I hope you're having a great afternoon, great evening, or great morning wherever you are in the world. And I appreciate you for stopping by today. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.